We're going to continue today in our study of the book of Acts, as, as, uh, as Dan Walker said. Uh, we're, we're spending the entire year studying out the book of Acts. Uh, and I, I, for one, am just so grateful to the, to the staff in our church for the, for the diligence that they put into uh, wringing every little bit out of, out of the book of a Bible. It would, have been, it would have been so easy to just say, you know, we're going to study Acts and maybe spend three months in it and say we're done and stamp it and say, you know, we're really spiritual people. I mean, we're, we're, we're digging in. We're, we're going through the difficult passages we are uh, we're kind of fighting our way through it, and uh, I've, I'm learning so much. And, and, and Scott alluded to that earlier about the way about the way the Bible just continues to reveal truth to us. And we're we're going to pick up in a, in a in a passage today in chapter four. We'll be in verse thirteen if you want to if you want to turn there now. Um, but this is something that we're we're in the midst of a drama that started in chapter three, where Peter and John are on their way up to the temple. They encounter a uh, a, a, a lame man. Um, Peter heals him. A crowd gathers naturally. Uh, Peter takes the opportunity to preach. Uh, the crowd responds, praising God. Um, ultimately, a, a few thousand people uh, end up becoming disciples as a result. But we encounter a group of, of men who, who weren't so encouraged by this. And, and Ed preached on this last week. Um, it was the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin. And this was a, this, this was a group of men... Uh, these were priests, these were elders, these were officials, judges. Most of them uh, were uh, from a, a Jewish sect called Sadducees, which was a very conservative uh, sect of, of, of Judaism. Um, they, uh, they, they only read the Torah. They didn't really give much credence to the rest of the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, and so understandably, they were quite troubled by what Peter and John uh, were teaching to these people. Um, so we're going to kind of jump right in uh, to verse 13, uh, if you want to read along with me. I am in the book of James. Let's go to the book of Acts. All right. In verse 13, the Bible says, of chapter 4 in Acts, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called the men again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Amen. And we see in our, our text today, as this, as this story continues to unfold, we see the, the Sanhedrin, these judges, they're astonished by what they're encountering. They're, they're looking at these unschooled, ordinary men. That's what the Bible uh, tells us that they thought of, of Peter and John. These, these, are not, these are not officials. These are not, these are not priests. These are not scribes. Um, these are just commoners. They would have recognized from their accent that they were probably from Galilee. Nothing good going on up there in terms of biblical scholarism. 
But, but here they're standing before them bold, right? They're, they're unafraid. These, these, these Sanhedrin are the most powerful Jews in, in, in Israel at the time. Of course, they're under the, the yoke of the, of the Romans, but we'll talk about it a little more later. But the Romans had allowed the, these Sadducees to, to maintain positions of power. And as Ed mentioned last week, we, these, this was the same group that had condemned Jesus to death just, just a few months earlier. Why aren't these guys afraid? Why are they standing up to us? And it says that they, says they, they, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But a better translation would, would be they began to recognize that these men had been with Jesus. So perhaps when they originally arrested them, they, they didn't quite know, you know who, the, who, these, who these guys were. But it starts to sink in. Wait a second. These are, these are the crowd. These are the guys that were with that Jesus that we condemned. Which would have been further frightening to the Sadducees because, you know, typically, and we'll kind of learn about this when we read chapter 5, you know, typically you know, Jesus was, was not the first messianic figure to kind of raise up. There, there had been others. And, and, uh, they, and, and they were typically revolutionary and, 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 and zealots and, and very threatening to the status quo. But, but once you killed off the leader, the crowd would scatter. Right. The followers would go into hiding here. These guys are not only have they not gone into hiding, but they're standing here in front of the most powerful tribunal in the land underneath Rome. And they're not afraid. And they didn't know what to do with them because there was this irrefutable evidence, which, by the way, I always forget. But that's the title of the lesson. Irrefutable evidence. Sometimes I'll go through the whole lesson without telling you the title. But there was this irrefutable evidence of this healed man, this, this man who had been, the Bible makes it a point to tell you that he was over 40 years old. For 40 plus years, he hadn't walked. He would have been a, a well-known figure in and around the temple because we get the sense that he was there about every day begging. And here he was walking. It's interesting to me that this old, that this, that this lame man or now healed man is still there, right? I mean, they had been arrested the day before. And, and here the, the healed man is still there. I don't know if he spent the night with him in jail or what, or if he went home and came back. But he can do whatever he wants now, right? Because he can walk, right? It's amazing. But, you know, the, 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 the Bible says that in, in their confusion, the Sanhedrin sent them away so that they could confer together. And I think we should take a minute here to kind of challenge ourselves on, on what it means to be a, a curious student of the Bible. You know, it, 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 in verse, uh, verse 15, it says they ordered them... To withdraw so that they confer together. And it says that they talk. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone in Jerusalem is, is, is believing them. If you're a curious student of the Bible, you should be asking yourself right now, how, does, how did Luke know this conversation took place? You know, Peter and John are not there. They, they've been sent. They're out in the hall, right? Um, you know, now, typically what we do, we try to be good, good Christians and say, well, it doesn't matter. I, I, I believe the Bible, right? And, and that's good. It's, it's better to be there than, than some other places. But I want to encourage you, and, 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 uh, and Scott alluded to this during the communion. You know, the Bible will never cease to amaze you if you just chase it down. Be a, be a detective when you read the Bible. Don't be a casual reader of the Bible. In chapter 5, you're going to meet a guy named Gamaliel that, that, is, that is with the Sanhedrin in chapter 5. So the Sanhedrin's meeting here in chapter 4. They're going to meet again in chapter 5. And you're going to meet this guy, Gamaliel. And, and then later in chapter 22, Paul is going to reveal to us that he himself had been a student 
of Gamaliel. So if Gamaliel was meeting with the Sanhedrin in chapter 5, it's, it's not unlikely at all. In fact, it's probable that he was meeting with them here in chapter 4. And he could have likely told Paul what had happened. And then Paul would later tell Luke, and then it would end up in the book. But I think even more interesting is that if Paul were a, a disciple, if you will, of Gamaliel, it's likely that he would have been here in chapter 4 at this, at this hearing. I'm not telling you that's what happened. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but it's not unlikely at all that, that Paul, the great apostle that would evangelize the non-Christian world, was here witnessing this. That fires me up to put together things like that. Don't be a casual reader of the Bible. Dig in, see where it takes you. It won't, it won't hurt your faith. All right? It's only going to strengthen it. No, but it says that uh, they could find no cause to punish them, so they give them a warning. Right? Don't do this anymore. And of course, we get this, this so inspiring response from Peter and John when they say, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. <clears throat> Such a powerful statement of faith that we're going to obey God and not men. But we're going to do it one more time this morning. Let, let's, let's be curious readers of the Bible. Doesn't Peter himself in 1 Peter 2 verse 13 say, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority? Is it, doesn't Peter himself say that? What's going on here? Right? Did, did, did Peter change maybe over time? Was he rebellious as, as, a, as a young disciple and maybe cooled off later in life when he's writing his letters? I don't think so. You know, look closely at the words that they say. You know, they, the, these, the, this Sanhedrin, they were the judges of the land. And Peter and John, they say to them, you know, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. You know, they're not saying we don't respect your authority. We're not saying we invalidate who you are. They're not saying we're here to rebel and overthrow you. They say, hey, we'll submit to your power. We'll take whatever judgment you pass on us. But we have to do what we got to do to obey God. We will see as, the, as, as this story unfolds, we will see them being flogged. You know, we will see them being persecuted, but they don't, they don't kick back in some sort of a disrespectful, violent way. They submit themselves to the authorities that have been placed over them by God, but they submit ultimately to God. Amen? Amen. I guess I'll just point that out to say you don't have to be obnoxious to share your faith. You don't have to go out of your way to be disrespectful to share your faith. In fact, it's a greater testimony. It's a greater testimony to Jesus if you can be humble, respectful, at peace with all people as you share about what you have seen and heard in your own life. Now, it leads me to my first point. Point number one is the irrefutable evidence of a changed life. You know, the Sanhedrin were witnessing something amazing here. They were, uh, they were seeing miracles. They were seeing common men be bold. They were seeing thousands of people repenting. It, 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 was, it was an amazing thing. But they weren't, they weren't interested in letting this message spread. They wanted it stopped. They wanted to resist it. 
They wanted to discredit the messengers. They said uh, they, they took note that they were uh, unschooled ordinary men. The, the Greek there is uh, agrammatos and idiotes, which means illiterate and common. Right? They were, they were, in their minds, they were tearing Peter and, Paul, Peter and John down to nothing. But that couldn't, that couldn't stop the message. They, they decided to persecute and intimidate. They put them in jail overnight. See if that cooled them off a little bit. It didn't. They bring them back in. They warned them. But, but they couldn't stifle this message <clears throat> because there was in front of them irrefutable evidence of a changed life in terms of this man, this man that had been healed. The, the Bible says that he was lame from birth. And, and the, the original language is more like lame from his mother's womb. And, and, and it uses language like that to get the point across to you that these legs had never walked. Right? The 40 plus years on this earth and these legs had just basically dangled from his torso. <laughs> Useless. This isn't somebody that walked, got hurt, and now he can't walk. You, you, when a baby's born, right, they don't, a lot of you guys have young kids, they don't just walk, right? It takes a while. They're, they have to learn to walk. The muscles have to learn to walk. The, I don't know how it all works, but the brain and the nerves and, the, and, and all that has to somehow develop. That had never happened in this man. This isn't some guy who fell off a roof one day and couldn't walk for a week and then starts walking again. And you're like, well, is that a miracle or, or did he just get better or... Did he need some rest? Was he faking it? <laughs> no, the, this man was obviously lame. And now he was obviously not lame. This was irrefutable evidence of a changed life. There was nothing that they could do. You know, we too, when we try to share about, share about the, the gospel, you know, we too are met with resistance, right? We're, we're met with intimidation. We're met with ridicule. Um, when we stand in front of our coworkers or in school, right? There are things out there trying to stifle us and hold us back. But who better than us, and I mean us right here in this room, to testify about the irrefutable evidence of Jesus Christ to be able to change lives? You know, think about it for a minute. Look around. We're not your everyday American respectable church crowd. I don't know if you were churched growing up, but I was churched growing up. And Sunday was the morning that you got up and you put on the best clothes you own. And you comb your hair that, that one day. And you better go in and, and your mom gets the Kleenex out. And she, yeah. You better be good. Because we're going to be in front of these church people. And we can't let them think that there's anything wrong with us, right? We're going to go to a religious assembly of religious people. And they're all going to act like everything's perfect. We couldn't pull that off, <laughs> right? We're, we're a mess, right? You think about us. You know, we, we come in here and we're quite open about the fact that we come from damaged backgrounds, right? I mean, yeah. think about what we've heard today. Think about what Sean shared. Think about what Dave so powerfully shared. Where else are you going to hear somebody talk about something like that? Have the courage to share about that stuff. You know, we're a... We're a we are an assembly of people who have had irrefutably changed lives. You know? we, we come from, we, we, we have the stories about the healed marriages, the, 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 the freedom from addiction, the, 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 the overcoming of sin. You know, I got, this, I got this friend, dear friend, dear friend, some of you might know him, his name's Donnie. 
you know, four years ago, Donnie was stumbling around Texas uh, with not a lot going on. And, uh, and, and he would tell you that he was living an immoral life, an irresponsible life, financially irresponsible. He'd been through two divorces. He wasn't doing a very good job with his kids or any of the other relationships in his life. His relationship with his parents and his, his, his extended family was not well. You know, but he had a sister up here. His sister was married to a guy who met one of you. They became disciples. And his sister reached out to him and said, Hey, Donnie, come on up. Come on up to, come on up to Virginia. And Donnie, figuring, what do I got to lose? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll stroll up there and find a job and skate by for a little while until the next disaster befalls me and my family and my children. You know, but Donnie encountered something when he was up here. He met, he met you. He met Jesus. He started to study the Bible. He became a disciple. He got baptized. But not only him. His dad got baptized. His mom got baptized. His kids got baptized. He got on his feet. He started making smart decisions. He's now able to provide a a safe and and righteous home for his family. His ex-wife, one of them. Moved up here less than a year ago. She too was baptized. And her story about the irrefutable evidence of Christ is even better than Donnie's. This is just one story. There are countless stories among us. And you might be looking around saying, where's Donnie? Well, he's serving in children's ministry. Rendering service in the kingdom of God. And some of you might be going, oh, I got to go back and get my kids. Trust me, they're safe. But who could argue that this is anything short of miraculous? This is irrefutable evidence of Christ. That beggar in chapter 3 was dragged to the temple one day hoping that he might get a few pennies so that he could eat for the day. But he met Christ and he got more than he bargained for. Donnie came up from Texas hoping to find work. He met Christ. He got way more than he bargained for. These are, just, these are just a few of the great stories that we have to tell. You have your own story to tell. It's your bold testimony of Jesus. This is what we have seen. This is what we have heard about which we cannot help but speak as we stand in front of the Sanhedrins in our own life. Amen? Amen. Point number two. Where does this evidence lead? What are we to do about this evidence? You know, what, where does it take us? You know, with the crowds that we read about earlier, it led them to rejoicing, to praising God. Many of them became disciples. You know, the Sanhedrin, on the other hand, had a very different reaction to the evidence. They wanted to stifle it. They hardened. They sought to suppress the evidence. <laughs> They wanted to tamper with the witnesses, right? You see, like a not unlike a mafia boss, you know that you're, you're gonna, you're gonna, you, we got some we got some dirt on the crime boss, and we've got a witness, and he's gonna testify. He's gonna turn state's evidence on this guy. He's gonna he's gonna blow the cover, right? 
And what does the mafia guy do? We've all seen the movies. You know, he hires the hitmen or he makes the threats. He shows them pictures of your family. Are you sure you want to testify against me? Right? That's what the Sanhedrin was doing here. They threatened them. We've got to stop these witnesses. They hardened. You know, Ed touched on this a little bit last week, but, but the Sadducees, the, 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 the Sanhedrin, the priests that, that made up this tribunal, they had a lot to lose. They had made peace with Rome. And Rome had allowed them to hold on to their power, allowed them to hold on to their comfortable positions um, in life. They, uh, they were able to, to maintain their reputations and, and maintain a, 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 a level of convenience and comfort that was, that was very appealing to them. In essence, the, the Sanhedrin had become friends with the world. And, and if you'll just permit me to read out of James, that's why I was in James earlier. Um, in chapter 4, verse 4, James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? You know, the good news about Jesus, the gospel, is not good news if you're a friend of the world. If you have found your comfort in this world, if you have things that you don't want to let go of, if you're trusting in some, some arrangement that you have built up for yourself here in this world, then Jesus is not going to be something you're excited about. You know, Jesus says in Luke 9... If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And he says, anyone who would seek to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. That is not what the Pharisees... That's the, if I say Pharisee, just insert the word Sanhedrin. I keep mixing that up. With the Sanhedrin, they didn't want to hear anything about giving stuff up. They did not want to let go of their life in this world. The good news of Jesus is repentance, right? You can't separate Christ from repentance. You cannot separate new life. You cannot separate boldness from repentance, right? Jesus' first sermon started with repent. Matthew 4.17, it says, And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near you. The Sanhedrin didn't want to hear anything about that. They were perfectly happy to be religious. They were perfectly happy to come to the temple every day. They were perfectly happy to dress up and comb their hair. They were perfectly happy to fulfill their priestly duties. They were perfectly happy to sit in judgment over the people that weren't as religious as them. But accepting the evidence of Christ would have meant the end of life as they knew it. And they were not going to have that. You know, we see that in our own culture. Dave talked about, talked about it a little bit when he was giving his testimony. We see in our own culture religion that compromises so as to make peace with the world. We see religion that waters down convictions so that we can make room for the other gods of this world. Gods of money, power, reputation, comfort, addiction to entertainment, sloth. Gluttony, pleasure, like David mentioned. But the thing is, religion without repentance, it has nothing to do with Christ. Religion without repentance has no power 
to save. Because we serve a jealous God. Right? And that's what we read in James 4. An unrepentant religion will weaken you. It's worse than no religion at all. Look at what it had done to the Sanhedrin. Compare the Sanhedrin to the apostles in what we've read today. The Sanhedrin were frustrated. They didn't know what to do with themselves. The apostles were filled with joy. They had repented. The Sanhedrin were timid. They were frightened. They didn't even have, they couldn't even judge. They couldn't even do their job. They were so afraid. The apostles were bold. Sanhedrin, they wanted to hide the truth. The apostles couldn't stop speaking of it. The Sanhedrin were tied to the status quo. They didn't want to give up this, this, this life that they had built. The apostles were thrilled with Jesus. They had no idea that they were going to end up where they were. And they had no idea where they would be tomorrow. But they had Jesus. They didn't care about anything else. The Sanhedrin were tied desperately and sadly to their life in this world. But the apostles had found life in Jesus. You know, just think about these apostles. How did they get to be this way? They had bet everything on Jesus. They had forsaken their friendship with the world. And I don't think it was always easy for them to do this. You know, one of my favorite sort of pictures of Peter is in Luke 18. And it's after Jesus has this interaction with the rich young man. And the rich young man is unwilling to let go of his trust, his friendship with the world. That manifested in his riches. And he, he walks away dejected. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. And for a, for a rich man to get into heaven. But, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. And, and Peter responds. And I can hear the anguish. He says we, we, we've left all we had to follow you. you. And I don't know that he knew that that was the right choice at the time. But now here in front of the Sanhedrin. Post-resurrection. Post-Holy Spirit, post-Ascension, he knew without question that they had bet on the right guy. And they were rejoicing as a result. They had died to their old life and they had found true life in Jesus. And the result of that was fearlessness. They were unafraid. You know, we don't have time to go into it right now because, frankly, it's a sermon unto itself. But, you know, fear... Anxiety, worry, neurosis, phobia, and its cousin, depression. You know, these are the plagues of our time. They destroy lives. They destroy our kids' lives. I mean, more and more I hear people talking about the, the, their, the anxiety levels of their children. You know, there are a lot of smart medical opinions on all that, and, and, and I... And I, I I buy into it and I encourage you to, 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 to trust the wisdom of, of, of the professionals in our, in, our, in our world. But I can't help but believe that the root of all this anxiety is that we're, we're worshiping gods that have no power to save. And I go to bed at night dreading what the next day will give. I lay up tossing and turning, stressed out. I wake up in the morning worried about what's going to happen. And that's because... I put my faith in things that can't save. I put my trust in things that are so uncertain, like money. I, I count on relationships with, with other humans <laughs> that are no more righteous than me, that are surely going to disappoint me. And as a result, I'm afraid. 
Because my faith isn't something that's sure to fail. That wasn't the case with the apostles. They were fearless. We talk about being bold. You know, this is our campaign. Bold. We sing about it. We pray about it. God help us. If all we're doing is sitting at home in the mornings. Trying to get ourselves pumped up. To be bold. Thrashing ourselves with guilt as to why I wasn't bold yesterday. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be like Peter. We'll never be bold until our faith is completely and totally in Jesus. As long as we are friends with this world, we will live in fear. We have to forsake these gods and worship only Christ. That will make us bold. That's what Peter and John are doing. In Psalm 95, it says, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Sanhedrin certainly hardened their hearts when they heard God being spoken about uh, through Peter and John. And, and interestingly, as, as, we, as, we, as we ride out the book of Acts, we're going to see the depravity of the Sanhedrin not stagnate, but get worse. You know, here we see them threatening. They're threatening the disciples, you better stop. Just one more chapter over, they'll, they'll, they'll step it up a notch and start beating them. Chapter 7, we'll see them kill a disciple. And in chapter 8, we'll see an all-out persecution break out against the church. All because they hardened against the irrefutable evidence of Christ. But for us, that's not our lot. Today, as we hear His voice, we'll answer His call. Let's forsake our worldly dependencies and the fearfulness that accompanies them. Let's boldly share about the irrefutable evidence of Christ that's in our own midst. A Christ that changes lives and seeks to change the world one life at a time through your bold testimony. Amen. 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 Amen.